0: This week on Writers Inc.
1: I write all my first drafts with a pencil in notebooks. I've got boxes and boxes of notebooks going back 20 plus years now. Um, something about the physicality of it, um, you know, being able to s- scratch a line out or draw an arrow down or draw an arrow up or circle something or write a note to myself.
0: Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author JD Barker and Indie Powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers In. JD, are you killing
2: contractors? I didn't know we were going to go there. Um, Yeah, so I I mentioned this garage that I've got going up a couple of times. It's a two-story garage. It's like 1,200 square feet or so. I hired a company through uh, Home Depot in order to put it up, so I figured it would be a no-brainer being a a Home Depot company, Um, but the building inspector came out here a couple of weeks ago after they finished putting the roof on and said the roof has to come off because they used the wrong kind of plywood. Um, So they had to pull the entire roof off, redo it, put it back on. Um, They're supposed to be done with this entire garage today. And the inspector came by this morning and he looked at the siding and said, um, they put the siding up with staples instead of nails. All the siding has to come down. Um. So <laughs> there's there's like four guys out there right now pulling siding off the side of this building, and they're they're numbering each piece as they go so they can try and put it back where it, where it goes. But this has been um a, a, a giant cluster f <laughs> for for what I consider to be a Home Depot company that I thought was going to be simple and and you know somebody that we could, would be able to knock out a garage pretty easily. Like I could have probably built this myself in less time. But yeah, so that's going on.
3: Yeah. Now I know why I go to Lowe's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
4: I'd like to introduce (laughs) our new sponsor, Lowe's. Uh, I
3: like how that you're like, they're numbering the pieces. I'm like, are you sure you didn't go to Ikea? (laughs) What's going on here? I just better off going there.
2: I just don't get it. I mean, they've got, you know, thousands of garages behind me. That, that's what I was told, you know. So, like, how do they, you know, not know what type of fastener you use to put the siding up if, if that's the case? I mean, you, you know that you need to use a certain type of nail, but I don't know, maybe there's someplace in the country where where staples are perfectly acceptable, but it, it, it is not here on my little island in New Hampshire, that's for <laughs> sure. So, in publishing news, though, I kind of stumbled into something that I thought was cool Yeah, Good segue, right? Yeah, nice transition. Um, <laughs> so I, I got this this thing that popped up in my email. I'm honestly not even sure how it came up in my newsfeed, but it's a newspaper out of the UK called the Press and Journal, um, and the headline is: Aberdeen author's new collection of horror stories vies with Stephen King atop a book chart. Um, So I loaded this up and 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 took a closer look at it. And, you know, this is a a, a newspaper and they they basically wrote this up. And the the guy is number one in the the horror short stories. Actually, he's number two um, in the Amazon ranking for horror short stories. Uh, Stephen King is number one with the Langoliers. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is the first time in the press where I think I've ever seen a newspaper acknowledge an Amazon ranking in a subcategory, you know, like this. I mean, they're saying that the guy is, you know, in, in the the number one, number two slot up there with, with Stephen King, but they're they're not pointing out that it's a, a subcategory. So I guess it's it's good and bad. Um, you know, I, I like I like the fact that they're they're actually taking an Amazon ranking seriously, um, but at the same time, you know, you can rank number one in basket weaving if you get your keywords right. So. Um, kudos to this guy for for getting this out there getting it into a newspaper and getting somebody to write it up because I'm sure it moved some books
3: interesting <laughs> <laughs>
2: silence silence from the peanut no gather. I'm just
3: I'm, I'm it's just it's just funny like because like you said that it could be you know obviously the guy obviously they moved a lot of books but it could have been any number of things you know and it could have been for like an hour <laughs> like I don't is yeah it still that, up there I don't, yeah. I, I don't know
2: like the, the newspaper article literally had a screenshot of the Amazon ranking you know like the same thing that you know like I've, I've captured a million of them when I hit number one and I've got a little folder where I, I store them. Um, but I have never seen the press actually acknowledge that. Like, usually if they say number one or number two, it's, you know, the New York Times list, or in this case it would be the um, the, the Sunday Times over in the U.K. Um, but they're usually, you know, they're quoting a, a newspaper. I've never seen them quote an, an Amazon ranking um, in, a, in a print uh, printed press before. So it's an interesting turn of events. Um, but, you know, again, like, I mean, to the author, like, that that's really cool. I think that he was actually able to do that, spin it into a story, and I'm sure it sold some books for him. So... You know just something to think about like you could take something as simple as an amazon ranking in a subcategory and turn it into some real press that can probably move some move some copies for you
3: and, and i think too we as authors tend to forget like we know what that means and what it means to hit the top of an amazon category and to be able to say you're a bestseller but when you say that to people who don't know aren't in the weeds like we are they think that's a really can think that's a really really big deal not that it's not To be, you know, because that is actually a decent category. But, uh, but yeah. So, the, uh, what I'm saying is though, like, the perception of that people, he gets it in the newspaper and people are like, oh, that's a best-selling book I've never heard of. I'm going to go check that out. And probably did help him move a lot of books. Yeah, I mean,
2: so. there's, pl- there's plenty of people that hit number one and number two in the subcategories all day long. And like you said, it could happen for an hour. Um, but, you know, this is the first time I've ever seen somebody spin it into a, an actual news story that, that probably moved a lot of copies. So that, 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 that's the reason I brought it up. I just thought, you know, somehow that, that author, you know, a little light bulb went off and he said, hey, you know, I could do this with that. And, and he got it done. So Kudos. Um, Jay. Yeah, I just uh,
4: in, in related publishing news, I wanted to let everyone know that uh, Writers Inc. alum Evan from Story Origin just released a beta read program on their platform. Super cool. Um, I haven't done it yet, but I've looked into it, and it, it allows authors to give beta read versions to readers and collect feedback all through the Story Origin app. So uh, there's, a, there's a post, he kind of wrote it up. I'll have a link in the show notes. Definitely check it out. Uh, it's a great way to streamline beta readers and aggregate feedback without just resorting to you know, the, the usual email method. So definitely check that out.
2: Thanks. Cool. Um, something else I noticed this week, Amazon rolled out performance-based advertising. Um, I haven't tried it yet and I haven't dug into it. Um but it, it looks it looks like it could be promising. I mean you can basically take a benchmark, like if you hit a certain uh click through ratio or a conversion ratio, you can cause your, your budget to actually move up. Um which which could be useful if you can figure out how to, to, to work that. So I'm I'm gonna check it out this weekend and play with it a little bit.
4: Yeah, I think it's great that Amazon is continually tweaking their ad platform to suck as much money out of the people <laughs> running the ads as possible. It's great.
2: Yeah.
3: Hey, if they're working, though, <laughs> let's play go on the other side. If you have an ad that's working and is getting a return, it is nice to be able to like that seems like kind of a hands-off approach for you to be able to increase the traffic on that ad and hopefully make more money. So. Yeah, I,
2: I know personally I go into my ads every every Thursday. I've got a little reminder on my computer, uh, 1230, I just I look at all my Amazon ads and I adjust budgets based on their performance. So it sounds like this might be some way for me to automate that process a little bit and, and save some time. Um, and also every once in a while I'll get the email at like 10 o'clock at night saying, Hey, this ad is about to run out of, you know, whatever the budget is. Um, and it it encourages you to, to increase it, which, um, you know, I guess is coming from a particular place over at Amazon. I get why they want you to increase your budget, but you know, at least this way you can, you know, if if there's a legitimate reason for it, you might be able to automate some of that process.
3: Yes. Now, every Thursday at 1230, I'm just going to start sending you text messages. (laughs) Check your ads. (laughs) What are you doing, JD? What are you doing
4: right now? Check your ads. I'm going to send them one at 1240 that says stop checking your
2: ads and get your words done. <laughs> you people are brutal. I don't even know why I talk to you guys anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't have to. <laughs> All
4: right, right, well, let's take care of some business and get to uh, get to our guests who we really want to talk to. Uh, as always, get, let's give a shout out to Cobra Reading Life, our wonderful sponsors who empower you, the self-publishing author, to take advantage of all their promotional opportunities, all without exclusivity. So if you're interested in uh, multiple international rights, promotions, uh, and and price settings, then Kobo Writing Life is the place for you. And remember, it's a book-by-book decision. So if you want to experiment, if you're not wide yet, definitely check out Kobo Writing Life. That's at kobowritinglife.com. And if you want to become a patron of the podcast and get to submit your questions for the monthly Q&A episode, which we have coming up pretty soon, you can go to patreon.com slash podcast.
2: And that brings us to the guest. And today we have J.D. Eric Rickstad. Um, so this one's going to be fun. So this is somebody I've known for, for a little while. He lives up um, in, in Vermont, a um, very cool place, in the, in part of the country. Um, New England in general is just very inspirational when it comes to writing. I, I found that after moving up here, but Vermont is, is gorgeous and a lot of history around there. Um, he's a New York Times bestseller, and we touched on this last week. He recently changed agents. He's changed publishers. Um, he's kind of changed his model of his books. He's he, you know, moved away a little bit from the, the thrillers that he, he used to write uh, to something you know different. Um, I recently read it. Uh, Called "I'm Not Who You Think I Am" It releases, I believe, at the end of the year. Um, fantastic book, though, and I can't wait to talk to this guy. Here he is, Eric Rickstein.
4: This is this is kind of a this, this kind of came
2: together last minute,
4: and I'm really but I'm really excited to talk to you because JD's been telling me a little bit about you. But what he didn't say is that um, that you have a, a side hustle as a Brett Favre impersonator.
1: <laughs> i guess so yeah yeah
4: yeah <laughs> <I>, uh, <laughs> you you got you got a, you got a young brett Favre look going on there it's kind well, of cool.
0: glad it's
1: a young one that <laughs> 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 uh i had someone say that at a um an airport once is that right yeah which i had not heard before uh when i was a little younger i i would get uh actually of all people jim carrey oh i, I had can better see that I had better cheekbones.
4: Yeah. <laughs> well, see, man, I, I was teeing it up for you because I thought what you yeah. we were going to say was, I am not who you think I am. Oh, yes.
1: Yes. Well, <laughs> maybe we can edit that in, right?
4: <laughs> well, this, this is pretty cool. You got a new book come out uh, October 5th. So depending on when you're listening to this, uh, mark your calendars or, uh, you know, we'll have a link in the show notes either way. But um, tell us about this book. And, and uh, I know it's a, a bit of a departure from some of the other things you've done.
1: Yeah. It's a standalone. And, uh, it's, it's, I've always had a, you know, a a thread of the Gothic in my novels and, and atmosphere and, and, uh, you know, some influence by, you know, Carlos Ruiz Zafon and, um, Donna Tart and Poe and Jackson and sort of these, this Gothic, this Gothic, um, take that I like, but this one, I really upped the ante and, um, and it, you know, so far the response has been, you know, that, that it worked. Um, it's, uh, it's a Gothic novel and it's set um, primarily in the eighties. Um, it's about a young kid who comes home early from school to discover his father um, committing suicide. Uh, but a few years later, he has something happen to him where he thinks this, this, probably wasn't even my father. And at the time he finds a note that says, I am not who you think I am uh, at the feet of his father. And he doesn't share it with anyone. And his mother instantly starts acting very strange. Um, within days, she rids the house of every sign that his father even existed, let alone lived in the house. Um, and so when he turns, into, becomes a teenager and realizes something is not right about this day something is not right about what happened something's not right about this note i don't know if it was even him and if it wasn't him then where is he and if it was him that wrote this note what did it what did it mean i am not who you think i am and he starts pursuing that mystery and that investigation brings in a couple friends of his his, his only friend clay and and a girl with whom he's smitten uh, juliet and they they start to uh, pursue this this mystery, um, but as he goes along, he discovers some very very dark things about his mother, about the town, uh, and begins to you know not trust anyone. Um, it's written in a framework though that uh, you're reading basically a manuscript of this boy written in present time, and he sent it to this his town's police department in in present day and it starts with the police letter saying we received this manuscript we vetted it to find out what was true and what was not and there was an evening where there was a mansion that was on fire uh, and burned to the ground in this what the town is known as this night of mayhem and madness and murder and suicide and he was supposed to have died in that fire and everyone believed he did Uh, So the manuscript, what you're reading, the book is the manuscript of this now adult man saying, you thought I died in this fire. I didn't. You thought this is what happened that night. It didn't because I was there and I'm about to tell you what really happened.
4: Awesome. And uh, I'm glad you didn't spoil because uh, we scheduled this interview just literally like 48 hours ago and and I haven't read it yet. So I I can't wait to, to dive in. I'm glad you didn't spoil anything. Uh, I, I saw that, you know, the tagline is one secret, eight cryptic words, lifetimes of ruin. Uh, is that something you came up with? Is that something the, the publisher wrote for you? Where'd that come from?
1: That's something I came up with. And that's probably how I should have just summed it up right right now. You know, I'm terrible <laughs> at it. You know, it's about, it's about uh, you know, one secret, eight cryptic words. I am not who you think I am that lead to lifetimes of ruin. And really the, the you know, the underlying theme of the book is, are we better off? Living with lies that make life livable and easier to live, or are we better off living with the truth that might make life unbearable to live or or impossible to live? And that's really what this kid, uh, you know, faces in, in this book. The the dig the further he, deeper he digs, uh, the darker things get. Um, and the more confused he gets, the more. Um, violent things become, and the more gothic things become. Um, so it's, you know, should we, leave, should we leave the truth alone or should, should we not?
4: That is a, a classically universal yep. theme, concept, like it's so powerful. It, it, did you have that in mind when you started the story or did that sort of emerge as you started telling it?
1: It sort of emerged as I started telling it. There were two things that inspired the book. Uh, and one, you know, one was the beginning of the book and one was the end of the book. Um, the beginning of the book, I had something very similar happen to a friend of mine uh, with his father, where he witnessed his father um, and his life. Um, and I didn't know that it's time and none of my friends knew that it's time. No one knew it at the time because um, this friend of mine had, had moved up from D.C. to Vermont because this happened to him. And none of us knew that. And later in life, he became a hardened criminal. Um, He was the first ever fugitive to be chased live on CNN news. uh, Ended him with being killed by the state police on live TV uh, after he had robbed a bank at gunpoint in in Denver, Colorado and run down a cop uh, and and killed a cop in pursuit and kidnapped people to um, drive him. Uh, And I didn't even know it was him at the time when I was watching this live and then they showed the mugshot and I was like, Oh my God, that that's my childhood friend. I, you know, I just saw this past summer when he was visiting. Um, so there was that this, this thing. And then I learned subsequently what had happened, you know, that he had witnessed this horrific thing with his father. And I thought if he had not witnessed that his life would have been entirely different. Um, even if his father had done what he'd done, it's still, to witness it would have been, uh, you know, something that, that changed us in life entirely. And then the other thing was the ending with this mansion burning um, up on this big estate that's reclusive and it's the town's most preeminent family and there's mysterious things going on. It was, this This was an estate that was basically across, literally across the tracks from where I, I grew up. Um, and one night a house and a barn burned down and we were close enough that we, you know, walked across the road and down the field um, in our pajamas, along with a bunch of neighbors. It was sort of out of Faulkner, <laughs> um, you know, to watch his house and barn burn and, and really not getting any details about it in the newspaper about what caused it. Uh, although there were always rumors um, that there was something, you um, intentful you know there was there was an intent behind this it was it was we always believed there were there were rumors that it was you know arson that something had gone terribly wrong in this in this family to cause someone to burn their own house down um so those those two things were there this awful thing that happened to this kid this mansion burning on this estate and then as i as i began to write it i discovered the note note myself uh, which is how i write um i don't I seldom plot anything out or outline because I think for me, anyway, it works for many people to do that. Many, many writers do, write great, fantastic novels that way. Um, but part of the magic for me comes in in discovering it as I go. Um, and I discover the note itself as I went. And then it was like, oh, what is what does this mean? And how how do I get there? How do I get to this burning down of the mansion? Um, based on the snow.
2: Wow.
4: <laughs> Those two stories coming together in, in sort of some cosmic alliance. I can see how you were inspired to to do something with that. Uh, do you still first draft with a pencil notebook?
1: I do. Yep. I write, um, I write all my first drafts with a pencil in notebooks. I've got boxes and boxes of notebooks going back 20 plus years now. Um, something about the physicality of it um, you know, being able to s- scratch a line out or draw an arrow down or draw an arrow up or circle something or write a note to myself. Um, you know, just the, the tactile feel of the pencil on on the paper and then being able to write wherever I want to write. You know, I like being outdoors a lot. So, you know, computer screens and, and the outdoors and sun don't get along all that well. Um, so I can take my notebook anywhere um, and write anywhere so yeah I still do it Um, and then when I transpose that into you know onto my computer as I go um, by the time I get it transposed I've edited enough as I've gone that it's essentially almost a third draft um, because as I'm writing it in I edit you know um, so it works for me it works you know so far so good
4: yeah. I, I love the process and, and writers are such junkies for process. I want to ask you a follow-up on that. Uh, are you, are you transposing in sort of a daily batch or do you do the whole first draft and then you transpose the whole thing?
1: Uh, I'll transpose as I go. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll get almost the entire novel done depends on how quickly it comes out and then, and then go, uh, back and do it. Um, but more often than not, I'll I'll start transposing as I go, um, because you know we all have days where we're we're stuck a little bit, and so to work out you know a previous scene or previous chapter when I'm inspired to do that to jumpstart my day, or to jumpstart me in the middle of the day when you know the new stuff isn't coming as well as it might, um, I'll put the pencil down and and rework something on on the laptop, but. For the most part, I I, I get a, a good majority of the novel done before um, before I, I transpose it all.
4: Okay, and I think you are uh, you're in Vermont, and am yeah. I correct in in saying that you uh, you live near the house that inspired the lottery?
1: Yeah, so you know another thing that inspires me, you know I, I you know recently been. You know, well, not recently, but for most of my books have been called darkly poetic or rich in atmosphere or gothic or, you know, these types of things, which I think setting should be a character in itself. Or I like that. I prefer that as a reader and writer, uh, whether it's it's a city scape or rural, it doesn't matter. Um, but I like it when setting is character. Um, But I'm inspired by where I am because, you know, Shirley Jackson lived here. I'm 10 minutes from where Shirley Jackson lived in Bennington, Vermont. And yeah, the story of the the lottery was inspired when she, you know, strolled her toddler down into town from her house on Prospect Street. And um, by the time she was on the way back, she had the idea for the lottery. So the lottery itself was set, you know, in a town that's 10 minutes from me. You know, she fictionalized it. um, But... The town that's 10 minutes away inspired her um and you know she she wrote her second novel here she wrote you know uh, the haunting of hill house here in fact i'm looking out a window right now where i can see the mountain where her second novel um was inspired by the mysterious disappearance of a of a young woman in the woods in mount Glastonbury. um i can i'm literally looking out my window i can see it because it's not too foggy um, so that she lived here I, I would go down and I would write when I'd get stuck on this novel I would go down um, by her house. you know her her house is still there and it's you know there's a lot of green space around it so I could sit with my notebook another benefit and just sort of try to soak it in and you know Donna Tart wrote the secret history 10 minutes from here and it's about all this surrounding area. Um, you know Robert Frost wrote, wrote here you know his old stone house is less than 10 minutes away from my house so there's there's a lot of cool stuff to draw from besides just the the natural world which in itself is you know darkly poetic you know nature and the mountains um rivers they're very beautiful but you know you one misstep and they go from beautiful to very dangerous very fast
4: it's interesting that you that you say darkly poetic because I also feel like that's the best way to describe Ray Bradbury's style. And I know that you're a big fan of the Martian Chronicles. Can you talk a little bit about his influence on your style?
1: Yeah, I love his style. You know, I mean, he, he, each one he has, you know, I think even stories in um, his other collections, October uh, um, and, and um, Fahrenheit, you know, he he has this very immediate way of writing and and this um, lyrical, but dark, and sometimes, you know, not sometimes, but, you know, often humorous as well. This one doesn't, mine doesn't have as, (laughs) doesn't have hardly any humor in this one, although others of mine have sort of a dark humor. Um, But that he, you know, he sets those stories on another planet, but they're still very human stories. They're about humans and humanity and greed and or um you know people that that are done with imperialism and you know see it as just a, you know another another marketing strategy for humans for you know and it's the truer and truer today. Um so but yeah his his writing style influences mine as well and just that sheer storytelling ability you know you can be darkly poetic and you know play with language and all of those things but you better not get in the way of the story either and i think he balances that really well along with you know numerous other other writers too of course but
4: yeah yeah i think we have a a lot in common as far as reading preferences i'm I'm a huge bradbury fan and i saw that you picked up a, a nice cheap cop used copy of the road at martha's used books uh, yeah. Right. Cormac McCarthy is another one who I think falls into that darkly poetic and beautiful. Oh, definitely. Um, right. Without a doubt. Yeah.
1: <laughs> without a doubt. Um, and, you know, you know, he's someone you can, you can or I can and millions probably read could read just for the prose alone, you know, Um so yeah, he's, he's another great one at that.
4: Yeah. I think the road is probably in my top five books of all time. It's, it's, it's one, one of the masterworks I go back and I reread, you know, periodically yeah. because it's just, there's so many layers to it, you know, and I pick up something new every time it's like listening to a great song and hearing something new on your you know thousandth listen. So uh, I can, I can totally appreciate that too.
1: It is. Yeah. The road and the blood Meridian is another one I go back to frequently, even just to read passages, you Yeah. Know um, to just get inspired by, by pros alone. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. JD told me that, uh, you, that you have a new agent and I thought "Hmm, there must be an interesting story there. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: I have a great new agent with, uh, Shane Salerno at the story factory. Um, and you know, a few years ago, I, I, was that a place where I needed a new agent? Um, the agent I had was great, wonderful agent, um, boutique agency. Uh, but um, he was removing himself more and more from the from the daily grind of it all, um, justifiably so. And so for myself, it made sense to me to sort of look elsewhere and start to cast that net again. And, and um, Shane got back to me right away right, right away. Um, and we had great conversations and, you know, he's all out for his authors, just all out. Um, and always there and, and very strategic and always thinking and always, you know, six moves ahead of, of, you know, with strategy and, and, you know, helping to get the most for the, for his writers and, and also, um, the best, fit, uh, you know, author with, with publisher, you know, and he set me up with Blackstone and they're just fabulous. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been a good, it's been really good. It's been great.
4: Had you had Shane in mind from the beginning or were you sort of surveying the field and seeing which agents might be a good fit for you?
1: Well, you know, what was interesting was that, um, you know, I'd, I'd seen Shane's name with what he did with Steve Hamilton several years back um and uh, and you know I knew we'd done that but when i was looking when you know what i do which a lot of people do is look at the authors you like that comp sort of with you um and or or that you just admire and, and are sort of in the same vein at least so i you know i put together a list of authors that you know write in the same vein as i do or same genre um and that i also really admire and who are also successful at it and um you know one was lou Burney, and one was meg gardner who had given a blurb for Lion Wait very generously you know one was don winslow steve hamilton um bill beverly you know a, a lot of a lot of writers and so then I went to check to see, okay, well, who has what off? You know, what agent? And they all have the same agent, and it was Shane. And so I was like, okay, well, that makes sense. So he was one of a number that I had approached that I sent out emails to, um, saying, you know, Matt, this juncture, I wrote the Silent Girls in this successful crime series, and these couple standalones and I'm doing this and I'm here's where I'm at in my career and I'm looking, you know, for an agent to to help me with the next part of my career and he got back to me within minutes of sending that email so um I I did speak with some others but he was um and many of them were gracious and and you know um offered themselves as as agents and i you know appreciated that but um shane was the best fit at at that time and and still now you know for for (laughs) keeps yeah
4: (laughs) what are uh what what are what's an example or what are some things that that shane does for you that you're impressed by or you didn't expect or that he's just really good at
1: God, what isn't he good at? I mean, <laughs> I mean, seriously, he's really involved. I mean, if you, you look at you know the other writers that he represents, um, he's very, very smart and patient and strategic, and and knows how to time things well. Uh, he won't rush something, um, you know, even if even you know, and authors are. A very neurotic bunch. <laughs> we get very nervous, or I do, you know. Um, and and he's very good at the psychology of it. Like, just hold tight, just hold tight. We're working on stuff. Don't worry about it. And you know, then I can go and just keep keep writing um, and not worry about it. Um, and know that you know he and and the, the people with him at the Story Factory are constantly. Grinding away, and thinking about you know, you look at the launch of, of Falling by TJ Newman this summer, um, and every you know every single writer he works with, Janet Ivanovich, he brought on, and you know he works with that author and with that book that's coming out methodically, patiently, strategically, in a very smart, savvy way um, that's customized at that particular book at that time with that author and that publisher. And he does a, a lot of work himself you know he, he puts together uh you know videos um that you see on twitter and and you know the trailers and and you know has a very hands-on approach as well as so um i he he does everything really well are you having any and these he, there for you know he 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 believes also that you know writers writers should get paid and are you
4: having conversations with him about your future projects like creative directions uh book ideas is that kind of something you share with him as well
1: um we haven't shared it that that much because we haven't really needed to you know he signed a a, we signed a two-book deal and the next book's done and i'm working on on um the next book after that so um we haven't really needed to at this point
4: yeah you got your you got your playful for the time being. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: That's a good place to be, I would think. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, I write every single day like like I assume most writers do, so. Yeah. Are
4: do you uh, I know we touched a little bit upon the the first drafting and you like to go outdoors. Do you have a particular time of day that you like to write or a, a certain place that you prefer?
1: Uh I mean, I write as soon as, you know, sometimes I'll write before the kids are even up. And then once, once they're off to school or, you know, situated during the summer at a camp, sometimes they're, they're home, um, during the summer. But, uh, you know, I write first thing in the morning, uh, you know, after some coffee and breakfast and, uh, on and off all day until, you know, it's kid time again at, whether it be, you know, three or four o'clock, depending on school or camps or, or even if they're home all day, you know, I'll still work. Um, and mix it up but outside um on my back patio i like a lot you know i'm close to the refrigerator i'm close to the snacks uh, but it's still peaceful and and you know we're sort of got our own little spot um, and then there's places on the river and there's places i've gone up to mount glastonbury where where that woman just dis- many people have disappeared actually um but that influenced you know Shirley Jackson's novel um yeah along the places along the river and in in, in the woods and uh around the around the house uh, as well
4: yeah just not at Lambeau Field
1: no, I never <laughs> never have that there. Maybe Gillette. Maybe I should try writing it <laughs> I don't think Belichick would like that too much. No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, if guy. Is that Favre? What is that? <laughs> the hell is brett Favre doing? <laughs> oh, he's writing a book. Oh, well, that I would make sense. Out of here.
4: <laughs> oh hey man. It's been a uh It's been a really pleasant conversation. I'd like to kind of wrap up with a a question we ask most of our guests. Uh, And I I think this will be interesting for you because you've been doing this a long time. Um, You know, the publishing industry is, is, it's undergoing a lot of change pretty quickly. Uh, What do you see on the horizon in general for the industry in say the next uh, three to
1: five years? Um, I see only good things. You know, I see more and more writers being included as they should be more and more voices included, as they should be, as they should have been for, you know, millennia. And uh, uh, as far as, like, technology and getting books out there and the ways people can read and the way people can find out about books that, um, you know, are, are the books that they want to read, that they're seeking or, or introduce them to entirely new authors or entirely new genres, um, you know, I put it this way, reading is not dead, as, <laughs> as they keep saying It is rather whether it's in the physical form of a, you know, hardcover or paperback, um, or whether you read electronically. I mean, I, I see nothing uh, but good things on the horizon as far as publishing, um, and hopefully, you know, bringing in more writers and hopefully paying them better too. I think, you know, social media has given uh, a lot of writers, uh, a way to have leverage when they join together and and sort of um, voice their concerns about um, how things are done um, business wise, you know, and and that combined with uh, agents being able to do their job, you know, to to get them to, uh, you know, pay pay writers better along the way or give them better royalty structures and things like that i I think it bodes well to readers writers uh you know and publishing in general
4: all right so i think as i mentioned in the interview i did not uh have time to read the book prior to the interview um so i want to kick it to jd first since you have read the book uh the book the interview eric what do you think
2: Uh, Well, in general, one of the things that I really liked about the book is the the structure that he used because the, the book is basically a book written by his lead character that's turned into the local police department in present day but it's describing events that have taken place over you know the last 20 30 years you know going all the way back to the, the 80s um, and some other events that happened later uh, but it's basically summed up in this manuscript and it's given to the police and they're, and they're basically saying they're, they're providing to the, the general public and they're they're basically telling everybody this is what we received, here's the story uh, and then he bounces around in time with that and it's just a, a really cool twist on you know the then and now type storytelling. Um, that I, I really enjoyed. Um. And also the the book uh, you know big portions of it are set back in the eighties which which I liked a lot too and I'm, I'm seeing a lot more of that I think the eighties I, I guess they're the new seventies which you know used to be the sixties and fifties but everybody's kind of moved on to the eighties uh, I feel the nineties are going to be coming up very very shortly but you know it's one of those one of those times like everybody just really seems to like writing in there um, for me personally like when I tell a story in the eighties it's all about isolation you know if you're writing something scary if you're writing a thriller or you're writing a horror story um, it's much easier and much more fun to do if you can take away cell phones and take away social media <laughs> Idea, and you could take away all these things that allow us to stay, you know, constantly connected to everybody. Um, I'm writing a book right now in present day. And, you know, one of the first things that came into my head is, OK, how can I take away their cell phones? You know, I, I need to get rid of this. You know, like it's just it's so much more fun to, to write, you know, good, scary stuff, you know, set back in the day. So that that was good, too. But um, a fantastic book.
4: Yeah, I, I just I, I wanted to add on to that because I, I, I have a feeling that it might stop with the 80s for the exact reasons you've mentioned. Because in the 90s, we do start getting more interconnected. I feel like the 80s could be the last decade where the natural setting is disconnected.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, if anything, I think it's going to play out a lot longer than it has with with previous decades. You know, moving on to the next one, I think we're going to get stuck there for a little while. You're
3: you're just trying to bait me into a debate about that. (laughs) 80s 80s versus 90s. No, I can see what you're saying, though. But uh, even though I could see some 90s stuff. Anyway, that's aside the point. I want to talk about how he handwrites his first draft. (laughs) I mean, that is – I don't know. I envy anyone who can do that because not that I can't do it. I just don't know if I have the patience. Plus, my handwriting is terrible to the point where I just think I would get frustrated trying to go back and type the stuff up. But, you know, like the more I've thought about it, because I've, I've definitely thought about that would suck to have to put all that on the computer but and i think this came up on the show a couple weeks ago but then he mentioned it you're kind of editing as you're doing that so you're kind of doing another draft it's not like you're just taking exactly what you hand wrote and putting that word for word back onto the computer um so i don't know i i think uh i or maybe it was joanna that was talking about that recently i think i think i heard that on her podcast but uh but either way, I don't know. That's got me really itching to maybe do a uh, a short story that way or something to try it. Yeah, you said what. Uh, that's exactly what
4: I was gonna say. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking the same thing. And, and I, what I might do is make it like a treat, like if uh, like I can take my notebook and like a coffee and like go out in the woods or you know make it like a special occasion and just do a short story. It might be a fun way to experiment with it.
2: Um, I, one of the things I. I I think it's because you're using a different method. Your voice is different. We've talked about this a little bit. I've got an old royal typewriter that my mom bought me that's, you know, way older than I am that's sitting in my office. And I'm working on a novel on that. And I try to type one page a day. Um, so I just go over there and I just pound out one page on on that actual keyboard, and my voice is very different on that on that typewriter than it is on my computer, um, and it's also very different from from dictating. You know, we talked to Kevin J. Anderson about that last week. Um, I, for me personally, I need to see the words on on the page in front of me. Like, I need to see how they're going to look when they're actually in a book. Like, that's for some reason my brain is just accustomed to seeing them that way and for editing and things like that. That's you know that that's what works for me. Um, handwriting though, I think is is no different. I think your voice is going to be very different if you hand write something uh, the edits are going to end up being a little bit different um, and there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't try to, to mix it up because for all you know that might be your your chosen method and you just haven't tried it yet
3: yeah I feel specifically like my voice I don't feel is that much different when I dictate versus when I type I feel like it comes out pretty much the same um, but I do kind of wonder if it would be different if I hand wrote but more than that I really the editing process I feel I feel like if I edited handwritten, which I could do that with a type manuscript, like I could print it out and then you know do the edits that way, which is not something that I typically do. Uh, but I don't know, I feel like that part of the process would be would be really, really interesting. Um, something else he mentioned too that I'll bring up uh, is and, and this is something that I think I mean you hear, but I think that kind of gets lost on authors sometimes. But I love when he talked about how the setting should be a character. I think that that is uh, that, it, and, and I and I started really thinking about that. And I, you think specifically here it goes, I'm going to do it this time, JD. You think of Stephen King. You know, I mean, his settings are characters. I mean, no, you know, whether the, the obvious example you could take is you know The Shining, but I mean, you can see it in every book from that to. Salem's Lot to it to eleven twenty two sixty three. Like, I mean, it's he's really really good at making the saint into a character, and I think that's something that um that authors tend to forget, and something that you should really think about when you are writing your story.
2: Yeah, I think it, it, you you need to bring it uh, to life. You know, like if you think of Riley Sager's latest book, you know, the car in that story is a character. You know, it's, it's very much part of that story, you know, just like the, the music that they're listening to and all, all the little things that he threw in there to make it part of that. Um, it's, it's important. Otherwise, it just kind of falls by the wayside. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, whether it's a house, a car, whether it's the, the yard, the city, all of those things are extremely important.
4: Yeah, I just watched a very Riley Sagaresque esque uh, movie on Netflix that, that pertains to this. It's called The Guilty with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, and the entire movie takes place inside of a 911 uh, phone bank, the whole the whole movie, and and that becomes and that setting is a character, and it's that sort of uh, I mean it, it's it's like what Riley does because it's very specific, but it's this whole idea of of utilizing the environment as part of the storytelling mechanism. Cool. Anything else on uh, Eric? But he was a fun guy to talk to, very very down to earth.
2: Yeah, he's, he's one of those guys, if you run into him at a conference, definitely pull him aside and, and chat him up. Um, he'll, he'll fill you in on his, his past you know, career and, and where he's going. and you know, He can help you avoid a lot of those hurdles that we, we all tend to run into as we're, we're trying to feel our way through this place. Well, cool. So, J.D., who's next? Next week we've got M.J. Preston. He's a horror author out of Canada. Um, a couple books out there. Um, it, it should be interesting. Excellent. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com
4: and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.